2: It's 2005, and if everyone is racist, is anyone racist? The movie Crash. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. Welcome to Unspooled, where we unspool the greatest films to see if they are classics. Or just remembered that way. I am joined by Amy Nicholson, a bon vivant, a film critic who writes for the New York Times, and a person who belongs to a breakfast club here in Los Angeles. Uh, Welcome, Amy. Thank you. You can join my breakfast club, too, if you feel like waking up and getting locked inside a building
1: at 7 in the morning. It is... Oh, my gosh magical. And Paul, Paul Sheer. that yeah. would be the name that I would put on that engraved invitation. Paul Shear, writer, director, comedian, and winner of a 10 times in a row Clippers versus Lakers battle of Los
2: Angeles. Ooh, Congratulations. Yes. for The last three years. Well, Amy, you know what? It's been a hard fought battle between these two teams. Can't be mad at that. But the battle of LA will continue. It will never end.
1: It will rage on
2: even in this movie battles of LA city against
1: city neighbor against neighbor. Clipper fan against Laker fan. I want to see that version. <laughs> now of
2: that's what we need to get into. No one here was a a fan of a different sports team. You know, this movie is interesting because it does affect cinema positively, I think, based on what it actually did, which is a small indie movie making a giant Oscar run.
1: Yeah, a movie that to get made, the director had to Mortgage his house. The actors had to agree to work to scale. A movie that I think now, when it is said out loud, people groan, but at the time was a legitimate underdog that had a surge of passion behind it. Six Oscar nominations, three Oscar wins, best screenplay, best film editing,
2: best picture. And I guess the question is, if you're going to make a movie about race, is a rich white man who lives in Los Angeles the perfect person to tell that story? We can... We can ask that question and we can see what that answer is because there are a lot of personalities he is um, embodying throughout this giant cast.
1: And it is one of the few Oscar movies to get its own spinoff television show. I mean, at least so far, I would watch Everything Everywhere, the television show, if Everything Everywhere
2: wins the Oscars. Oh, my gosh. I also like that you're already abbreviating it real. uh, That's the better way to say it. (laughs) The number of times I've
1: written E-E-A-A-O and then looked at it like I'm singing a nursery rhyme to myself.
2: (laughs) All right. Well, Amy, you know what? With uh, all that said, let's put our foot on the gas and unspool it.
1: The year is 2006 and Jack Nicholson is on stage at the Oscars. What he says next will cause a firestorm whose flames have not yet gone out. One might even call it a fireball. A fireball just like the one in the movie where this racist white cop pulls over a black woman who he sexually assaulted just the
2: day before. And he pulls her out of a car seconds before it explodes. Now, some Oscar voters saw that fireball as forgiveness. That if a racist white cop and the black woman he sexually assaulted can have a moment of connection and see each other as people... Surely there's hope for us all. Where other Oscar voters saw it more as a moment of failure, that when the white cop looked in the black woman's face and saw that she was more terrified of him than the flames, he knew that he wasn't the hero of the story after all.
1: Both of these types of Oscar voters voted for Crash to win Best Picture over the critical favorite, Brokeback Mountain. Few of them talked about it out loud, however, because the film reviews were mixed with some reviews... Downright hostile, Crash had the lowest critical rating of every film that was nominated for the 2005 Best Picture. And even now, over 15 years later, people still point to Crash as one of the most controversial Best Picture wins in Oscar history. When The Hollywood Reporter did a recount in 2015, Brokeback won by a landslide. Still, Crash has become the future model for long-shot Oscar campaigns, especially because it was this tiny budget $7 million movie by a first-time director, Paul Haggis. Paul Haggis, the man, is even more complicated than these characters he put on screen. He was an early adopter of Scientology when he was a kid, right, in community college when he was in his 20s. He rose up in the ranks. He was a high-ranking member of Scientology when he won this award. But then he publicly defected and wrote exposés that have really helped tarnish, and I would say, crumble apart the image of Scientology around the world. However, he also, just a few months ago, was found liable on several accounts of sexual assault. Uh, We're not going to get into either of those two things, but those are two very real things that are happening in the real world right now.
2: But let's talk about the fictional world of Crash. It is expansive. It is big. It's got a lot of moving parts. It's very um, early 2000s, where we have all these actors literally crashing into each other, right? Over the course of a day and a half in Los Angeles, for simplicity's sake, we're going to call all the characters by the actors' names. We have Ludacris and Lawrence Tate. They carjack a married couple of Brendan Fraser and Sandra Bullock. Uh, Brendan is a DA who's scared that if people find out, he'll either lose the black vote or the cop vote. Sandra Bullock, she's somebody who is kind of, you know, secretly racist or somebody who has prejudices. And then as soon as this incident happens, she starts Acting on them. She gets super paranoid and angry with the Latinos who work for her, especially Michael Pena, who's a locksmith who comes in to change their locks after they were attacked. We also have uh, racist cop Matt Dillon, who pulls over a black TV director, Terrence Howard, and his wife, Tendiwe Newton. He knows that they aren't the carjackers he's supposed to be looking for, but he just wants to exert some power over them because he's mad that his dad has a urinary tract infection. He's a complicated racist. And then we have Loretta divine who plays, uh, that insurance agent that Matt Dillon is having trouble with as well. Uh, He feels she's not helping him, and she comes back in the oddest of ways at the very end, Crash 2, if anyone is interested. Uh, Matt Dillon has been partnered uh, for the first part of this film with Ryan Felipe, who is uh, someone who really stands up against racism and then manages to totally be a racist. We got Don Cheadle, who's kind of. Truly, the bookend of this film, he's a detective trying to decide on how to handle the case of a white undercover officer murdering a black undercover officer. He's also sleeping with his partner Jennifer Esposito, uh, calling her Mexican when she isn't. And there's a Persian store owner played by uh, Sean Tobe, who is so tired of being harassed by people who thinks he's an Arab terrorist that he buys a gun. Then there's Greg June Paik as a Korean man who seems like a simple victim of a hit and run, but just like everyone in this movie, he also has some shit going on too. That's right. Uh, everybody here is a, an onion of racism. Just peel back a layer and you will find someone being racist underneath their skin.
1: <laughs> in short, this movie is a lot of people hollering back and forth at each other about racism and saying out loud the prejudices that people guiltily keep to themselves. I just like the top song on the radio that weekend of May 6, 2005, which is also about how to holler back when people are fucking shit.
2: I heard that you were talking shit And you didn't think that I would hear it
0: People hear you talking like that Getting everybody fired up So I'm ready to attack Gonna lead the fight Gonna get a touchdown Gonna take you out that's right,
3: put
2: your pom-poms down, getting everybody fired up. Ah, Gwen Stefani, the amazing Japanese singer, right?
1: Uh-huh, this is her video with all of her <laughs> wonderful Japanese best friends. Um, and, you know, I would say that this is a video that kind of captures the moment when Crash won Best Picture. Because people went
3: bananas,
1: Oh, Paul, is this our most appropriate song of all time?
2: I mean, truly, I love all the work that you did to get to that. Uh, and by the way, uh, great timing on Gwen Stefani uh, for coming out with that story recently, too. So it all ties together. You know, Amy, I alluded to this in the opening, but this is a really interesting movie that I feel like gets more and more reductive As the years go on, you know, watching this movie in 2005, I think that there's an argument to be made that, you know, people could look at this and, and feel like, okay, I'm not so bad. You know, yes, I might have these feelings, but I think everybody has these feelings. And, you know, it, it, it really is a movie, like a salve to white guilt. But as we've gotten further and, you know, especially in this post MAGA, post-George Floyd world, I think when you watch this movie, it seems a lot more dangerous than it did in 2005 because of how simple it is. I wouldn't want to say it because I feel like I'd be uh, just making a a lame uh, metaphor, but this movie is maybe too black and white?
1: (laughs) I mean, I only have the perspective of somebody who just watched this movie in the year of our Lord, 2023. For some reason, I managed wow. to get away from watching it at the time. I was at an Oscar party when it won. And I remember everybody at my beloved buddy, Matt Valine's, um his apartment standing up and screaming at the television. But I was like, oh, we were supposed to take that movie seriously. I never bothered to watch it. And then everybody was so mad that I continued to never bother to watch it. And I had kind of a complicated reaction to this movie, like going back and seeing it through that lens because something in me actually found myself admiring this film against my will in that at every beat, I found reasons to be mad at it, to be cranky about it. I don't like a lot of the choices. We're going to talk about all of this stuff. But at the same time, my impression of the world in 2005 is that We were all pretending that everything was fine and everything was like going great. And like we were solving problems like racism and sexism. And I found myself kind of relieved that, like, you know, this upward climb that I think will continue up through like Obama getting elected, everybody being like, that's it, everything is great. And then the election of Obama, the years post Obama, making me realize how dark of a place the world is and that most of my life we wallpapered over problems and pretended everything was fine. This little bit of me. Felt kind of glad that in 2005, this movie was like, we are all fucked up and we really need to have an actual conversation about race and things are not fine. It felt strangely prescient to me. Uh, Like predating Obama. I know that sounds crazy, but that's the lens I'm in right now.
2: I understand where you might feel that. I can definitely say that the person I was in 2005 is not the person I am in 2023. Thank God uh, for multitudes of reasons. But I remember watching this movie and I think what makes this movie feel engaging is the performances. Straight off, you are looking at a like a murderer's row of fantastic actors. And when I first started rewatching it, I was kind of excited. I was like, oh, maybe I do like this. It's it's it just feels like you're watching an old, you know, Steven Soderbergh film. Like, oh, I love that. Oh, wow, wow. And the performances are great, but it does this thing. And I don't have a word for it. I need to come up with my own word for this, where somebody says something in a way that's like really simple, but they say it like this, and you're like, wow, they're deep. Like, and that's what this whole movie is. And I think this movie has soap opera tropes and is so aggressive in its shock value that you're kind of being ping-ponged around. So I understand, like, an audience walking up being like, wow, they, they really went there. Like, you know, could you believe that Tony Danza wanted to play this character? But in watching it, I'm also like, all these choices are so safe because... This movie is, I think, trying so hard to be important by wearing racism so out on its sleeve. Like, it's like, oh, under the surface, we're all racist. So that means we're not racist? Ah, see,
1: that's the part that really interests me, because I agree with so much of what you're saying, and yet I feel like I'm seeing it at a slightly different angle. And I think it's because to me, this movie says, we're all racist, full stop. I guess it's like, do you think Matt Dillon is having a moment of redemption or do you think Matt Dillon is having a moment of failure?
2: But I think it's written from a white point of view because it's like, well, we're all racist, so there isn't any racism. Like, because we all have these things that we feel, but that ignores so much more on a larger scale of like, you know, socioeconomic racism, uh, judicial racism. You know, there's so many versions of it that white people aren't affected by it just it basically says because some people have prejudices it we're all equal and I think that that's dangerous and dumb but I also think it's a perfect thing written by a white dude who was carjacked after going to a movie premiere like that's kind of what I feel like he was writing this to be an apology to himself to be like I wanted to you know I was mad. That guy was black or whatever. Well, there's an energy there of him being like, oh, but it's okay because I think everybody's like this. Because everybody in this movie is not only racist, but they're stereotypes. And that was bothering to me. But I mean, they all are the same character to me. I'm like, I'm like everybody is equally racist, also a stereotype, and also like it's like, but also good, right? Yeah. Like every like that's everybody. It just depends on who where they
1: I mean, Paul Haggis has said that he sees himself in all of the characters. That all of the characters are him. So they're the same. They they, they are all all the same. That's what. Yeah, they are all versions of Paul Haggis yelling at himself. And okay. If we're going to talk about the, the carjacking, let's just talk about the carjacking. Let's get into yeah. it. Like, here's him saying that this happened to him.
3: All of these things happened to me. The, the carjacking that happened to me, uh, changing the locks in the house, that was us, the video being stolen. Uh, all those things were just little things that happened to us. I just decided to write it from the other person's point of view. I read it from the carjacker's point of view rather than my own. And, um, and so uh, uh, I just wonder what, what happened when they stole that tape and if that thing, what, what happened there.
1: By the way, the full story of this is like, yeah, he was like at a blockbuster video. He's coming home from the movie theater of Silence of the Lambs. He and his wife went in. They rented something Norwegian. The guys who carjacked them not only took his car, they took the video he had just rented, too. And so he gave this interview. And so he was telling like an interview about it that he like told the cops. <clears throat> this is his quote in the interview. I think you'll discover that these men have been here quite often looking for that video and it was never in. And they saw us coming out with it and it was just too much to take. So they grabbed the video and then they had to take the car just to make a getaway. And the interviewer is like, you've really said that? And he's is like, oh yeah, I totally said that. And then a couple of weeks later, the interviewer is like, no, really, you've really said that? And Paul Haggis told the interviewer, well, it sounds exactly like something I would do and it sounds so improbable, I'd never do it. So you just take your choice. And the interviewer kind of falls on the side of the story that Paul Haggis just tells giant stories and lies to everybody about everything. And eventually at one point he's like, I don't know, I tell stories so many times I have no idea what's true or not in my own life. Oh, boy. So this is the grain of salt with which to examine every quote I might actually say in this uh, episode that comes from Paul Haggis, which is, God knows. God knows what's true. The man loves a good story. And he said that over the years, about once a year, he would think about the two guys who stole it and he would ask himself, What was their deal? Were they friends? Had they just done this, like, for the first time that night? Was this a new thing for them? Were they used to it? Like, what was their life? And he would wonder about what they did, and then he would forget about it, and then he would come back to it, and then he'd start wondering about it again. And then he finally wrote it down, and he came up with, you know, this opening scene that I love and makes me so angry at the same time.
0: Wait, wait, wait. wait. You see what that woman just did? You see that? What? She's cold. She got colder as soon as she saw us, though. Oh man, come on,
1: don't
0: stop. Man, look around you, man. You couldn't find a whiter, safer, or better lit part of this city right now. But yet this white woman sees two black guys who look like UCLA students strolling down the sidewalk, and her reaction is blind fear? I mean, look at us, dog. Are we dressed like gangbangers? Huh? No. Do we look threatening? No. Fact. If anybody should be scared around here, it's us. We the only two black faces surrounded by a sea of overcaffeinated white people, patrolled by the trigger happy LAPD. So you tell me, why aren't we scared? Cause we got guns. You could be right. Get the fuck out of the what? car! Give me the keys! Come on! Come on okay, hurry okay, up! Okay, okay, okay. okay
2: I okay, do no, want to okay, talk about this because, again, I don't think this is a movie that's trying to be problematic. It feels to me very much like a white guy in 2005 wrestling with his perspective of racism. I think it's incredibly hard for a white, wealthy man to give a real granular look at how racism plays out in society. I just think... and. And God bless, maybe there are people out there that could do that. And I don't mean to offend any wealthy white man, but I do believe that when you write these two black men as being angry at being stereotyped, but then showing them being the stereotype and then heighten that by not only making them a stereotype, but then putting them in a position where they do a crime, like you are... Really reinforcing some terrible ideas. And that to me is dangerous because those two characters that we follow throughout the film, and Ludacris does have one of the the craziest endings of any character in this movie, I just think it makes you say what I believe is true. They may have more multitudes than I think that these people have, but at their root, they're still that, right? At their root, they're not tipping. At their root, they're still carjackers, you know? And even at the end, when Ludacris has this change of heart where he releases a a van load of, are we going to call them uh, trafficked Asian people out of a van, you know, this, this really gut-wrenching moment like where he's releasing these you know this this group of people into the street i think his last line is like get out of here you chop suey motherfucker and then like gets in the car and kind of like smiles like "Mm, today was a good day And like what the fuck am i watching like what the fuck am i watching amy like like it really is like wild. It's like everyone can be a piece of shit and I think what really bothers me is that every character in this movie can make themselves feel better about them being racist. And that to me like that smile at the end from Ludacris really spun me out because I'm like, what? Like are you, what are you smiling at? Like you just just freed slaves hostages, sex workers, whatever you want to call like Human beings who are caged, you freed them and fucking insulted them as they got out of your van. And you
1: gave them 40 bucks as though they could get even one meal for each of them
2: between it. Release them on the streets of L.A. Yeah. Like
1: what? Absolutely broken and filthy and wearing clothes that they have probably had to like soil themselves in since they've been locked in a van for over 24 hours. And then the music and then the music. For one millisecond, sounds like it's about to play Alanis Morissette, Ironic. And then it does it, thank God. But it is lunatic. And I want to say, again, I agree with you. Like One of the fundamental things I struggle with in this movie is that it's like, Paul Haggis basically said, I want everybody when they sit down at this movie to come in and be there sitting in the darkness and for me to tell them all these stereotypes that they secretly think and shouldn't laugh at, like that Asian people are bad drivers. And then in the darkness, I'll get them kind of guiltily giggling because they feel like nobody can see. And then once I'm like, I've got you, I'm going to reinforce all your stereotypes. Then I'm going to twist all your stereotypes around and screw with you. And, you know, his, his basic quote on it was like, I wanted to write that movie and bust liberals. It is too easy to bust folks we consider to be racist. So the film was a social experiment. I wanted to fuck with people. I was tired of my friends and people I worked with being unable to see everything that was around us. I like that idea of fucking with people. But then it kind of boils down to him being like, hey, black men are carjackers and white cops are murderers. White ladies are Karens and Arab people are like angry and violent. And everybody just proves him right in the movie. They just prove him right.
2: And I really struggle with that. Amy, you nailed the thesis, which is everybody is different, but ultimately at the core of their being, they're exactly who we think they are. And the and the most offensive character to me is Ryan Phillippe, who is the partner to a racist cop. He's the only one in this film that really speaks truth to power. And when he does, he's told, well, if you don't want to be partners with this guy, you have to tell everybody that you have a flatulence problem and you need a private car. So if that happens, then you can then you can not be partners. And this guy, this character does that much to his chagrin.
3: Radio check 21L23. 21L23. I got
2: strange noises from your car. And then, that character, the, the, to me, at that point, the guiding light of this movie, kills someone in an act of basically racial profiling. Like, and it's like, you see, even the person who's against racism, it is a racist, is open to having these prejudices. And I think it's like prejudice and racism are mixed together here in a way where it's like, oh, you've put a color in with my whites. Everything is a little bit pink. It's like, well, prejudice isn't bad. And, you know, and we all have prejudices, but what's racism and prejudice? It's like, well, there are, I mean, And stereotyping. It's just a big mix. But that character, that arc, I mean, what'd you think about that arc, that Ryan Philippi arc?
1: I felt like it was really cheating that Ryan Philippi arc. Because to me, one of the stronger moments in the film is, you know, Ryan Philippi has been there to watch like his partner Matt Dillon sexually assault Tandy Away Newton in front of Terrence Howard. Then he runs across Terrence Howard again and he does. Exactly what you kind of really wish that police would do. He would stand up in the moment against the cops and says, like, we need to give this guy a warning. Like, we keep talking right now that one of the ways... To try to heal policing, if there is any way, is to go back to kind of a neighborhood cop idea where the policemen know the people in their neighborhood, where they're aware of everybody, they know their history, they can kind of speak up for people and say, I know him, I can vouch for this guy, which he does. And to this scene's credit where he does that for Terrence Howard, when Terrence Howard is having a very, 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 very bad day, is this scene is written and performed in a way where it's not easy. It's not like he stands up and anybody helps him and anybody thinks he's doing the right thing. Not the other cops, not, not Terrence Howard I
3: told this man to stay where he is and keep his hands in plain sight. This man better be related to you by blood because this is fucking nuts. I need this favor. You can check the guy's name, his license. He's got no priors, no warrants. I need to let him go with a warning. What kind of fucking warning?
1: A harsh warning. Thank you.
3: You've been warned. Do You understand me? Do you understand me? You want something from me? Because I'm right here. Dude, I'm trying to help you. I didn't ask for your help, did
1: I? Go home. That scene is hard, and it makes it clear how thankless it is to do the right thing between like that and the fart jokes. So then that the very next time we really see him... He's just, like, super angry and touchy, just, like, straight up, like, starts yelling at Lorenz Tate and, like, thinking the worst things about him, being like, you don't like hockey, you don't like country music, and just builds this up to, like, an angry fight kind of out of nowhere. It feels really false. It feels really false on both of their (laughs) behalves. Why don't you laugh outside? Yo, why are you getting all bent out of shape? Not getting bent, man. Just pulling over.
3: Come on, man. Keep driving. I said I'm not laughing at you. And I'm not telling you to get the fuck out of my car. Why are you being a fucking jerk, man? Just drive the well, car. I got a better idea. Get out now. Fine. You want me to show you? I'll show you. Put your hands out of your pocket. Put your hands where I can Matt, see them. Who the fuck you, you think you're talking about? Put your hands to. where I can see them. You want to see what's in my hands? I'll show you what's in my fucking hands.
2: I mean, and I think the arc that they're trying to articulate is, well, Matt Dillon was right. Matt Dillon says to him, You know, in a very close embrace, like, hey, if you're a cop long enough, you'll become a racist, too. And if you're a cop longer than nine hours. And that's like the joke of this whole fucking scene. It's like, okay, he had one interaction and now he, you know, not to say that he's a racist, but he, you know, fires his gun immediately on this young black man for laughing like he's not doing anything incredibly threatening, but he's profiled him and he now is carrying around these prejudices and forces him to kill somebody. And it just felt like, man, this is weak.
1: By the way, the thing that, of course, uh, Lorenz is pulling out of his pocket is like a St. Christopher medal, which he's been like kind of putting on his dashboard. Mm -hmm. He's like laughing because as different as they are, Ryan Fulip has one on his car too. He's trying to pull it out to show him. Uh, He doesn't want to just say what it is for some reason. And then
2: this is like the coincidence that gets them killed. There's also another character that gets the grand fuck you treatment, which is this Korean man who is uh, a victim of a hit and run. And again, to really unpack every part of why this movie has things that are problematic in it, we'd be here for a four hour episode, but he's a victim of a hit and run. From Ludacris and Lawrence Tate, they decide, even though they're carjackers, they're going to do the right thing and they're going to drop him off at a hospital. And you think, oh, my God, this poor man was just a victim of a a violent crime, only to be revealed to be a human trafficker. Like, And that, to me, is like, can't you just have a person who isn't knee-deep in something so fucked up. It takes Sandra Bullock to sprain her ankle to realize that she's not racist. And the only reason why she realizes that she's not racist is because when she needed help, the only person who helped her was a Latino. It's like, does that cure her racism? It's like, that's what I feel like. And I'm sorry to keep on going back to it, but it's like, Okay, I can feel all these things, but if I'm personally benefited by them, then I'm not feeling these things and and that to me feels like the way that you see a lot of politics, you know, you'll see a lot of legislators uh, you know speak out about gay marriage and then uh, inevitably uh, one of the members of their family becomes, you know, comes out mm-hmm. as being gay and then they're all of a sudden all four. It's like, well, I can't identify with it unless it happens to me. And I feel like Sandra Bullock isn't ever, Looking at her prejudices, she's just basically thankful that the person who she who helped her <laughs> was like Latino. It's it's so I don't know. I'm like, you I'm know, so, I wish like, said that scene yeah.
1: is I wish that like after she tells her housekeeper, you're my best friend, that Haggis had given the housekeeper just even a quiet moment. To have a look on her face that's like, lady, I have actual friends. This is so sad if I'm your best friend. Like, you're not my best friend. She's not her best
2: friend. That's nuts. And I think it really goes to show you how susceptible we can all be to really nice production values, big stars, and plotting that I do believe in the theater you could feel like you are watching something incredibly important. And we we saw this a little bit with Green Book a couple of years ago. You know, Green Book is this movie where it's like, hey, you might be racist and you might have your own things, but if you get them in the car together, they're going to find out that they both like football and they both like beer or what, you know, whatever that was. You know, I think we are always looking for these movies to say, It's okay not to change. It's okay not to question more. It's okay to be like, well, yeah, I do feel that way, but that's the end of the examination. And I think that's what I'm really having trouble with.
1: But can I say that is actually the thing I respect most about this film is Mm -hmm. that it doesn't heal racism over the course of two hours. That it's not like, and you've now seen this movie and now racism is over. It's just like, here is racism. Because I do feel like the way that Hollywood tends to feel comfortable about films about racism is they do the Green Book thing. They make them, period. You know, they put it in the past. And I feel like when you take a film that's about racism and put it in the past, you're supposed to kind of infer, well, that's how it was. And I do respect that I think this movie is, this is how it
2: is. It's the same thing, Amy. This is I
0: don't driving think it
2: Miss, is the same thing. It's driving Miss Daisy. It's it's green. It's green book, and I'll tell you why. But
1: those were yeah. passed, and
2: I feel but, like. But this, what's yeah. the difference? It's like what's the difference of Tandy looks at Matt Dillon in this way, like yeah, you might be racist, but you also saved my life. Like that is just an abbreviated version of the end of these other movies that are set, you're right, that are set in the past. And I guess if you're just saying like, oh, it's brave to do a movie about racism in the present. Well, you know, look, we have, we're at this point we're inundated with that. And I think in a great way, like we have actual voices of people, not rich white religious men uh, telling us like what what the world is like, because that perspective is only going to be, like, think about Paul Haggis's point of view. Paul Haggis's point of view is a high-ranking member of Scientology who is a incredibly successful um, writer producer. You know, he's coming home from a premiere when he gets carjacked. Right? It's it's not like this even happened to him when he was poor. Like I like no, we should say he was very rich at that time. Like this is a guy who was like a huge
1: TV writer. He was a massive, 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 massive TV writer, millionaire, facts of life walker texas, texas ranger all of that like he was super rich even though he was a first-time filmmaker technically when he made this movie
2: and i do think that there is something to say for his want to make it but i guess my question is is whose perspective is he giving and when he says they're all me well you don't have enough you don't have enough to give everybody that and and Look. Well,
1: but also then there's the layer of what he puts on the page and what turns out to be in the movie. Because mm-hmm. Tandy Away Newton gave this really great interview in 2020. I think it was to Vulture New, Ma- New York Magazine or something like that. Where she's basically like, I will tell you some tea about my entire life. And she talks about this scene. And she's she does a few really interesting things about it. Like, But let's talk about the look first. She was like, this is her quote. I had a sense that that look was supposed to be a look of connection, like you saved me. But for me, the look to him was, okay, it turns out I got saved by the worst person in the world. My trauma does not end here, that is for sure. And she's like, I didn't feel it was redemptive, at least not from my character's point of view. It's complicated. So at least even if you might be putting that on the page, when I look at her, I see her giving something different.
2: I like that. And I think that as an actor... You really sense that each one of these actors made it right or added flourishes to their dialogue, their performances. You know, I personally think that like Michael Pena and Don Cheeto are the most nuanced of everyone in this film, but they still can't escape the plotting that puts them in a position where, regardless of the acting choices, the plotting of this movie gives you a, the answer is blank more than anything else. Like, yes, we can see nuances. We can see that, you know, I'm sure on set someone said, well, I would never say that. Um, But at the end of the day, you still have characters acting in stereotypical ways, uh, you know, that you are saying is truthful.
1: Yeah. And all of these coincidences that make it seem like you're telling a story about truth, but none of this could possibly be possible. Like, sure, the Persian store owner has a broken lock that is actually a broken door. And Michael Peña comes in, tries to explain to him that it's a broken door and not a broken lock, and he can't fix it. And he's- you know, very touchy because he's been getting yelled at. This this movie was even, like, made in 2004, so it's even closer to 9-11 than when it, like, came out and won the Oscar. You know, he's very upset and kind of thin-skinned about the idea that people are, like, cheating him, judging him, yelling at him. And so they have this big fight over, like, whether or not Pena's trying to cheat him or not, Pena's trying to do the right thing, this guy is not sure of that. And then literally that night he's robbed, like, literally that night he's robbed, literally, Of course, if you're that guy, you're going to think the guy who robbed you is the only person who at that moment knows your door is broken. But in the movie, it's like racism, but it's the coincidence. That's the villain more than anything.
2: And that scene made me angry. This scene where this man (laughs) shoots a child and you let the audience believe that a child has been shot for this was really like... It is so soap opera If you're going to make that choice, make that fucking choice. Don't make that choice and take it back. Like any bold choice is completely erased. Ryan Felipe going to his, you know, sergeant and saying, my partner's racist. That's taken away when he acts racist. Our, our store owners, like, I'm going to, my anger is going to actually affect something terribly. I shoot a kid. Do you take that away? This cop, molests this woman and starts to create a fractured relationship between her and her husband because her husband didn't do anything. You take that away. Every move, and I could go through them all, is taken away. And the DA, the most ineffective character, God bless Brendan Fraser, great to see him up there doing a great job, is neither here nor there. He just wants to get out in front of it from a political standpoint, but doesn't even feel like there's much there beneath it. Like his handlers have more of a sense of it than he does. Like it doesn't even feel like he's in the know about what's going on behind his back or in front of him. So it's like, well, all right. So this one character who actually has a position of power doesn't even care to affect any change, but for his election. And it just feels like every thing that affects these characters is just it's it's again just X'd out like this whole movie is just lining through. It's like whatever we set up go magically goes away.
1: Well, and it hurt my head. They're watching a movie from two thousand five where you have like William Fickner as you know the kind of the fixer of Brendan Fraser, the guy who smooths yeah, things. I love over. that character. It was great. Yeah,
2: yeah, great, 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 in, great performances. Great, great performances.
1: But you have him coming in and telling Don Cheadle you don't understand the political climate. You must prosecute this white cop for murdering a black man because we need that in this climate. And then the music and then the tone of Brendan Fraser making that announcement makes it seem like this is a bad thing. Latasha Harlins, Rodney King, these names ring a bell, detective?
3: Yeah, vaguely. We have attorneys for this slain police officer camping in our offices. We have his mother and a half a dozen men of the cloth who swear that Lewis was one of the 12 apostles of Christ. We have two black city councilmen and a congresswoman who call on the hour every hour demanding to know what the district attorney intends to do about this and you want him to walk into that press room and tell them all that the situation is complicated?
1: Like, just the idea that this movie is saying the problem is that we... Maybe prosecute white police officers too much within the year of our Lord 2023. That is still a problem getting those prosecutions to go through. Like that cracks my brain in half. And, and to go back to the part about the shooting and The Little Girl, that the movie is like, not only cheats the shooting, like not only he brings out the gun, he shoots the little girl. Somehow she's alive. You then spend like the next 40 minutes of the movie, 30 minutes of the movie being like, was it a magic bullet? What happened? And then at the very end, there's the reveal that his gun was filled with blanks. And you're like, oh, okay. But it's like he goes through the stages of, girl is dead. No, she's fine. Bullets are magic? Eh, It's just a blank. But like, (laughs) all of that is so ridiculous.
2: Life
3: is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy, So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
1: of a detour.
0: Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at Ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.
2: I may be bringing to this conversation a little bit of my own like work and thought process about racism and white supremacy, a a term that I know many people get bugged out about. But this idea that, you know, you have to look at the entire system. And if you're going to make a movie where literally every plot line revolves around race, couldn't you have done it in a way where we see it more nuanced, right? We do have the political sector. We do have the police sector. We have all the sectors in which racism appears and can be systematic, but we don't show that it's any different in any of those situations. Like it truly, it really just feels like racism is done by powerful people In whatever system they are in, which I 100% buy.
1: Well, yeah, like it seems to say on the one hand that race and possibly class, but really just race, are all that rule and define people. I'm saying possibly class because we do have moments, you know, like that scene between Terrence Howard and Ludacris where he's like.
3: You embarrass me.
1: You embarrass yourself. So that is there, but it's sort of like it does kind of say the position you were born into is really your ruling star, almost like it's like a horoscope or something. And so that feels naturally reductive. And like there's strange argument for it that they made even at the time because the criticisms we're making are not new. Like in 2005, people are like, what is wrong with the way this movie talks about race? The defense that like Haggis and his producer said was that this isn't about reality. This is a fable. You know, they really kept hitting the word fable, 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 fable. I find the fableness kind of unconvincing when it's like, this is also what's happening now in the
2: streets. I want to talk to you about this because this idea of fable, right, that is what Paul Haggis has called this movie. So a fable is a short tale to teach a moral lesson, um, often with animals or inanimate objects. But like a fable would be something like the tortoise and the hare, where you can walk away learning a lesson like... To me, I often think that, like, Star Trek acts as fables, especially the the original TV shows. You know, when you go back to, like, the classic episode of Star Trek where um, there's a race of people, some people have black on their left-hand side of the face and white on the right, and the other ones have black on the right and white on the left, right? And that was this warring class of people. And that was Star Trek's attempt to talk about the silliness of racism, right? They, these are the same people, but they're seeing one little difference and they're warring about it, right? And we've been talking about racism in popular culture for such a long time. I think that now we're getting these nuanced portrayals of it, which is great. And we're going a little bit deeper. But if we're talking about it purely from a fable point of view, What's the fable? What's the lesson learned? What's the moral lesson? The moral lesson is it's okay to have prejudices. It's okay to stereotype people because chances are you are also being stereotyped by them. And whether or not that's right or wrong, we're not going to get into that. But this movie does hypothesize it's right. Politicians are only out for the votes cops are racist no matter what carjackers will carjack um and for no other reason than to get some quick money
1: the only one who's off the hook really is is michael peña who's like i just want to be a good guy and i'm a good guy
2: yes and i I agree like michael peña and i do think that don Cheadle. It feels a little forced in that moment where he's really writing, not wanting to acknowledge what Jennifer Esposito is. Even for 2005, like, that's your partner. Like, he seems, that one seems so, like, egregious. Like, oh, no, you're white. Okay, wait, like, it, like I've, that read a little false to me. It felt like, oh, we need to throw something in here for him. Which is fine, but that's what my problem is. Is like, why couldn't you just let those two characters? Because I do believe that they actually give the most internal performances. You know, they're not the ones that are out there screaming at people. Um, and I think Michael Pena is great. I think Michael Pena is really great in this. And I think the reason why I yeah. like him is because racism is hoisted on him throughout the entire film, and he does nothing. Thank God. Like, I literally thought. That that final scene of Michael Pena looking out the window with his wife and daughter in the bed was gonna like pan down and he's gonna have a gun. You know, or like at one point he would walk to a car and do something, you know, awful. Or like you pan down to his basement and it's full of those, you know, uh sex trafficked uh, yeah. Chinese immigrants. Like or even you, know, as like, you pan
1: down to his Basement. I don't know why I'm saying basement, like people in LA have basements. But like it's a fable. I mean, they can all have it's basements. It's a fable. Yeah. Here a fable LA, everybody has a basement. You pan down to his basement and it's like all of the stuff he stole from the Persian shopkeeper's store or something like that. Yes,
2: right. Yes. Ugh, that I mean-
1: would kill me. Like I having not seen this movie, I was freaked out even that like that uh Tondaway Newton was going to blow up in the car. And that it would yes. be like, see,
2: you shouldn't have argued with the cop. You should have just let, him, right. let you. him do his thing. I was so nervous about that. And why is that a heroic moment? I know it's like the heroic moment is, oh, man, this guy did his job, even if it was a black person. Like, that's what they're kind of getting at to a certain degree. It's like, well, you know what? No matter if he's racist or not, he's still doing a good job. I mean, I really do think that it's like
1: him walking through the movie, thinking he's the aggrieved hero, and then looking into her eyes when she's screaming and how much she would rather die than let him touch her. Like, I mean, just listen to her voice.
3: Not you. Not you. It's okay. Don't touch me.
0: Don't touch me.
3: Keep away from me. You Wait, it, you I'm, you I'm trying. Me.
1: I'm trying to help. Not
3: you. you. Not you. Somebody, anybody.
1: And I will say, I guess his one moment of learning, I don't think he completely learns or absorbs that he is a a piece of shit. But I do think he at least is like, may I have your permission to cut your seatbelt off? That's like the best that he could do. But that said, that said, that said, even with all of this, like, given your definition of fable, I do reject that this is a fable. Um, And I reject it with a little bit of relief because that is what I like about this movie is that it doesn't teach a lesson. That it just is more of like a look in the mirror, man, like examine yourself. Because, yeah, I grew up in San Antonio, Texas. And when I moved to LA, I really had a lot of culture shock because this town is so segregated, much more segregated than I expected. You know, like San Antonio is a really diverse city. Like the demographics actually aren't super different than Los Angeles, but the feeling on the street is so different. Los Angeles, has attention that San Antonio didn't have when I was there growing up. And even now, when I like go to other parts of America, I always feel like it's like certain cities that I expect to be like more racist are actually less racist. When I go to visit like Michigan, it seems like less segregated than L.A. does. I'm always like, why is this city that I love so much why does it have this kind of, like, tension in it? Like, why, are why when I go to bars, is it only ever one type of person in every type of bar? Not even just by race, but by, like, age, by class, by interest. Like, this city has lots of just micro-bubbles. Not an excitingly new thing to say. That's, like, kind of the definition of L.A. But I find it to be such a relief to go to other cities, and you go into a bar, and it's a giant cross-section of humanity, which I don't find in bars in Los Angeles. It's a very confusing town. So I appreciate that this movie is at least calling LA out because I can really sit in LA very comfortably and be like, man, my relatives in Michigan, like, do they even know what news is? They must like be kind of like sheltered and blah, 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 blah. And then I go there and I'm like, no, no, LA is also sheltered in its own way. I appreciate that about this movie. I really do. And I i think I kind of came to recognize while watching this movie That it's more interesting and perhaps more accurate to watch it not through a lens of this is what race is, but through a lens of this is what hypocrisy is. I think the hypocrisy element of it is actually pretty dead on. You know, how we can go through life thinking of ourselves one way and then acting a different way. And to make that point, I think he has a lot of leaden jokes, like the ludicrous one where you have this great conversation about like tipping and prejudice and stereotypes and how you think people are going to treat you and how the way you think they're going to treat you reflects on how you treat them. And it creates the cycle. And then to come out of it with that kind of like, but i bump Borscht belt joke of like, we're the carjackers now. Ha ha ha. It feels like the natural outcome of talking about hypocrisy and also a bad joke. And if anything, it reminded me of that moment in the graduate where where Mike Nichols is so eager to like make a dumb joke in the middle of the very first like Mrs. Robinson seduction right. scene that it like for me kills all of Mrs. Robinson's attraction to Benjamin forever, it feels like that where you're like you're so eager to get to the joke that you kind of ruin the point of your movie.
2: Yeah, well, I think it's like well, I'm bringing up something heavy, which is this character of Don Cheadle's mom. I'm like, oh, you you think that's the heaviest thing you're bringing up? Not the five scenes before this that we've already seen racism played out? Like, it also just goes to show you his unawareness of what is heavy or trying to like, look, if you want to make a racial farce, do it. You can. I mean, you know, Spike Lee did it. Like, you know, uh, and I think that that's a movie that has gotten better with age as well. Like with Bamboozled, which has gotten... Uh, I think better as time has gone on, maybe what I will give this movie is it's too ambitious. It's too ambitious to explore race because it doesn't give it enough time to really live with any character. You're seeing these short little things. And when we go back to the time when this came out, we are talking about, you know, a lot of films that felt the same of this area. Like I called this like uh magnolia for dummies or you know, or racist magnolia for dummies. Oh like my it's God, sort of like
1: it is. It's even ripping off the Amy Mann like yes. musical montage yes. at the end and it's got snow instead of frogs. Yes. <laughs>
2: I was freaking out about that. And it's like, I think it's so hard to do what he wants to do. I don't know if there's a better way to do it. So I think where I'm just coming at this movie is it looks and feels familiar, but it echoes a sentiment that I think that we're dealing with right now in culture. And movies like this, and I'm not saying this is the only one, but I'm saying movies like this have created a problem of intolerance because it minimizes people's differences. It's the equivalent of saying, like, I don't see color. This movie is saying, it's not saying I don't see color. It's saying, I see color, but so do you. So I'm okay. This is like, a, like again, a salve for the white person to be like, you know what, everyone's bad, but not Latinos because probably... If you're seeing this movie in an indie art house, they're cleaning your house, so you don't have to worry about them. They're actually good, so don't feel bad about them. But you should be a little bit nervous of those black kids that you see over there, and you know, and, and you know what? Hey, look, I'll say it: cops are racist. I, I did it. I said it. You know, it's like it's just irresponsible because. It doesn't preach tolerance at any level. It doesn't preach compassion at any level. It doesn't even preach like exceptions. Like the the biggest moment that we're supposed to see is like ludicrous sees a bus full of people being sold on the black market for God knows what. And he's like, no, let's not do that. And you're supposed to be like, wow, that guy... Like, it's like the base, like the most basic human, like it's so aggressively large, like, and then, and then every character who you think like, oh, they might have a a, a version of this. Like when Matt Dillon rips on Loretta Divine about how uh, affirmative action has given her position in the insurance company. I don't even want to get into the logic there, but, and, and I love that he's really upset about his dad's UTI. It's like, oh, my wife has a yeast infection that makes me racist. You know, it's like, all right, so his dad's got a UTI. He goes in there, he bitches out Loretta Divine, who takes it, and I think that the way that she reacts is so interesting. Again, like a nice, subtle, different performance. And then you end the movie, you bookend the movie with her getting into a crash, which is how the movie starts, and her basically... A meet the first words out of her mouth are like, you dumb. You know, I don't speak English. Speak English to like an Asian man. I'm like, oh
1: God. Oh, where? Speak American. I think she says speak, a speak American.
2: American. Can I tell you something? I'll talk about this very briefly. My brother-in-law is a Chinese man and he got into a small fender bender with somebody that I know and that person immediately went racist Mm -mm. on my brother-in-law, not knowing that that was my brother-in-law. My brother-in-law and I were watching a movie, and he jumped up when he saw this person in a film. And it was like, that's the guy, because we'd heard the story. And I was like, what? Him? So there's more to that story in the sense of like how we went about approaching it. Uh, once I knew that this is somebody that I actually knew, but I think that's the base level that this movie is living in the immediate reaction, but it does no deeper thinking than the most heightened animal brain version to someone different, it's like if you're in a fight and someone is larger than you, you're gonna call them fat. If someone's tall, you're like, "How's the air up there?" You know, whatever it is, like all these like base reactions. This movie is saying all we are are base reactions. And once you get past the base reactions, we're good people, but we'll always probably lead with racism. I don't know. I'm I'm really wrestling with this in a way of like I'm I'm not arguing is this movie good or bad. I just think that we are so used to seeing such easily manipulative stuff like this that makes us feel good, or probably makes white people feel good, um, that it's fun to dig in and be like, you "No, know, how wrong this is.
1: You know, I just realized the year before Crash came out, I moved to Koreatown. You know, mm-hmm. I've been in Koreatown in LA pretty much since I've been in LA. I love this neighborhood. And as I was moving into Koreatown, like literally moving in, like I had my car full of all of my stuff and I was turning onto the street where I was going to live and I was at a light. Somebody rear-ended me and like, you know, totaled my car and then like drove away. In that first week, and I'd only been living in LA for a year, that first week, the number of people who said, well, you did just move to Koreatown, that's why you got rear-ended is astounding. Is astounding. Right. And that was the year before this movie came out. So you can't at least say that it's not inaccurate about L.A. And I guess that's also what your story says. But you're right. What does it do? Right. He's like, I mean, Haggis is basically like, I'm going to tell you some ugly truths. That was his whole shtick. We say things in this which are not nice. We say, we speak truths
3: that are ugly, ugly truths. And, uh, and, and we let nice people say those things. Uh, we let you know some beloved people, Sandra Bullock, one you know, of the most <laughs> beloved people in America, say horrible, horrible things, and and you know, and half of us are, should be going. You know, oh, it's horrible, but yeah, I, I sort of feel that because unless you explore these issues, unless you just sit them out and go, no, this is the truth, guys. We don't like it. It's not politically correct. It's not, but this is the truth. This is what we feel, and until you explore those issues, you can't deal with them. You can't handle them.
1: I still can see how this movie won the Oscar. Really easily, because not only, you know, is it this story about L.A., but honestly, what this movie really had is just all those movie stars. Like, when you think about how, like, Oscar season works here and the campaigns, it's kind of like the more movie stars, the better, because movie stars are going to go out and they're going to host cocktail hours talking about your movie. And movie stars right. are going to say, like, play attention. Look at this movie. You have to watch this movie. I'm going to do a Q&A after this movie. And, like, the more movie stars doing publicity for your film, The better. And it is almost impossible to think about a movie that had more movie stars promoting this film and had this kind of powerful story behind it in that everybody in this film did it for scale. You know, like everybody in this film basically was acting for like $6,000 a week, which, you know, you have Sandra Bullock in your movie for $6,000 a week. Sandra Bullock hasn't even made a movie for a year and a half because she's been telling everybody none of the material is that good. And then she comes out and she decides to do your movie for $6 million. Like, yeah, I can absolutely see why, you know, SAG, like the largest branch of the Oscars, was like, we're all going to watch this movie and we're all going to absolutely pay attention to it. And then on top of that, one of the things that they did in promoting it that was so smart is this is really the first movie to be like, we're going to make DVDs, baby. And we're going to send over 100,000 DVDs out to every corner of the Academy And they're going to have to watch this movie. And in a way, that was part of the magic of being a movie that came out in May. They were like, we're already on DVD. It doesn't matter. Like, we're not going to get pirated. We can send our DVD out. And that calculus is much different if your movie is coming out in December and it's not on DVD and you really want people to go buy tickets. Like, they always say, come out the later, the better. And that helps your Oscar chances. But I don't know if I believe that. Um, Sending those DVDs out, taking that risk, and then having everybody watch it and having all of these movie stars in it. I do believe that that is a major reason why this
2: won. And, you know, this is a movie that Paul Haggis, and this is maybe part of the lore, he didn't even want them to do an Oscar campaign, right? Like, he was like, I actively told him, don't waste your time or money. I will say, before we get too far away from it too, I do want to, like, call out that while it was incredibly divisive, it won a lot of awards across the boards. It was nominated across the boards. I think, you know... You're right. Like looking at it in the 2005 point of view, I think you can get pulled in. It's also, I got pulled in. Like the first 20 minutes is like, am I going to like this movie? And then I think the repetition of it is what got me to be really furious with it. I, I think the one person we haven't really talked about that I feel like really was a breakthrough for this world in this film was Terrence Howard. Terrence Howard, who's the producer, who's pulled over early in the movie by um, Matt Dillon and his wife is the one that's sexually assaulted. Um you know, he has an interesting storyline. Uh, he is a TV director. He is successful, well-liked, seemingly, but, you know, is basically throughout the whole movie forced into these situations where he can't really express himself. And the only time he ever expresses himself um, or shows anger is to another Person of the same color, right? He starts beating the shit out of uh, ludicrous, ludicrous, yeah. But like you know, when when Matt Dillon steps to him, Matt Dillon has the power in that he's in his, in his mind. I think we're supposed to say like he's he's playing it the right way. He's playing so he doesn't want to get hurt. He doesn't want to get arrested, so he's doing that. And then when Tony Danza comes in, God bless Tony Danza, when he comes in to do that part of making the kid in the TV show that he's directing sound more urban. Uh, you know whatever term they use in the film you know uh, he's got to eat shit there It's like he basically yeah. is let's eating shit let's play that shit. scene actually because yeah.
1: that's the scene where I really believe that Haggis has witnessed it at least I'm not going to say Haggis knows what it's like to be Terrence Howard but Haggis being on, on TV sets for 20 years this is a moment that he's like oh yeah oh yeah I definitely saw that happen
3: this is going to sound strange but is uh, Jamal seeing a speech coach or something what do you mean have you noticed? Uh, this is weird for a white guy to say, but have you noticed? He's talking a lot less black lately. <laughs> no, I haven't noticed that. Really? Uh, like in this scene? He was supposed to say, don't be talking about that. And he changed it to, don't talk to me about that. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You think because of that, the audience won't recognize him as being a black man? <laughs> Come on. Is there a problem, Ken?
2: Excuse me? Is there a problem, Ken? And I love that. I, I do think that that's an interesting thing. I think, just going back to this point, as I'm talking with you, I'm, I'm realizing it's a movie that only scratches the surface, right, of everything. And Terrence Howard does have a really interesting arc in the sense of, I would watch a whole movie of Terrence Howard. It's almost like Falling Down, that Michael Douglas movie. You know, it's like, how much shit can we pile on this guy until he breaks? But even when he breaks, he doesn't, like, he breaks on Ludacris. He saves the day. He risks his own life. Like, he almost gets down to committing suicide. Like, that's what he's trying to do in that scene. Like, he's like, shoot me. Kill me here. Like, there's this energy of him coming out of the car. I don't know if that's to protect Ludacris or if it's because he can't live in this world anymore where his wife doesn't respect him. He doesn't get to be doing his job. And he can't live in a world where he's not constantly... Being a suspect by police officers because these police officers should be coming to help him, and they have their guns trained on him like he is an like a violent criminal, you know. And his storyline kind of ends there, right?
1: But you're—I would love to know more of that character.
2: That's a really interesting character that you know we're seeing him be fed up with that, but does he make any changes? And I think this movie says no he doesn't, so the movie essentially allows us to also reprimand, like, this carjacker, so there's an audience, or a white audience, we're like, yeah, he does, that that guy did need to be, he he is disappointing, you know, it's a very, it's a very hard movie to put your finger on, because, again, it's, it's that guy, it's that guy, and it's a guy who lives in LA, who's like, yeah, no, I'm like really doing a lot of this. It's like, I'm listening to you from my heart. I have my eyes closed for the most of the time. I'm hearing you talk because I'm really hearing you. It, And I think that's why it makes the movie feel tricky. It's like great actors doing great performances, I think covering up some of the sloppier material, I think probably finessing a lot of the sloppier dialogue, but the end results are still a script that live in this area that I like, and what? So what's tomorrow for Terrence Howard? What's tomorrow for Matt Dillon? Like, you know, why don't we have Matt Dillon? Like, I guess like maybe here's my fan fiction. It's like, why don't you have Matt Dillon go home and put a gun in his mouth because he realizes, oh my God, I'm a criminal. Not that that's like the end of racism, but it's like, but there's a, a weight with his racism. You're, you know, you have Terrence Howard go back to work and say, fuck you to this guy like where are the changes and i think what we are left with at the end is there will never be changes well yeah this is the world
1: but maybe there haven't been enough changes I mean, right. I, we did i don't think we did have changes i feel like this movie came out and maybe we saw that it was making a change that it didn't make or maybe we, or really the story that haggis keeps saying is like the movie came out and he keeps talking about this um hollywood reporter review Where he basically says the Hollywood reporter was like, you know, this movie might have been important 10 years ago, but we've solved all of these problems now. He refers to this review all of the time. And I have not been able to find it, actually. I was like, did that really happen? And I couldn't find it. Um, But he was really like, that was the issue in 2005. People were like, this isn't brave or cutting edge. We've solved racism. And I find, I do think that a movie that like solved racism is a lesser movie because we haven't, you know? But I do also feel that it's unsatisfying, and and I guess what I guess where I come down is like I think that Paul Haggis, uh, is a fabulist who is kind of full of shit a lot of the time, and yet one of the things he said that I believe is he said that he did want to write this movie to fuck with people,
2: and he said that when this movie prepared what's fucking with people, what's
1: fucking with people to, say, with people? to, to say, make them
2: laugh at their stereotypes, and then going oh, but he does like country music, like what, no, but to say what, to say
1: this is you to say like you sit in hollywood and you think you're a good person are you really a good person i bet you actually aren't like i think that's what he means by fucking with people and he said that when he was at tiff that he was that the people in the audience this is his quote i saw people were gasping and crying and i'm going who are these idiots i believe he
2: really felt that way
1: who are these idiots about the people who were crying at this film that he basically made as a fuck you guys
2: I do think that this is a little retroactive, kind of like the way that Tommy Wiseau views The Room as a comedy now. He's like, oh, that was my intention always. Like Paul Haggis going like, I just did it to fuck with people, I think is a little bit of a defense mechanism because when he is called on certain things in this movie, he takes offense to it. And and he also takes offense to this humor. Like, let's just take that scene where Don Cheadle's character... Basically says to Jennifer Esposito, I I don't care what you are. You're white enough. So you're white, right? This kind of crazy, I think the only out of character moment for that character. Um, And people talk to Haggis about that moment. He's like really defensive. He's like, no, no, that was a joke. You know, that's a joke. And I wanted to do that to disarm the audience and, and so misdirection about the movie's dramatic bearings. Uh, It makes sense on a conceptual level, but it's like, does it? Does it like, is this putting us off our moorings or is it just more of the same? I, I don't get that as humor. I don't get that as disarming the audience. I, I just feel like he's like, oh, yeah, no, but that's what it was. It was supposed to give you that. I, it, it seems like, are you trying to also be like, oh, the serious thing is that he's dealing with his mom who's not well. And by the way, is racism all just a side effect of your parents not doing well in health? <laughs>
1: I mean, I half get it because I think he's saying like, here's the guy that you thought you could trust in this movie. The one who's like telling you the thesis right at the beginning that here in LA, we don't touch each other. We have to crash just to feel something. And then he's saying, eh, he's, you know, just as fucked up in the head as everybody else about race. Right. You know, and I mean, just that taking away of any character to feel safe in, any character that you feel like you can
2: more yourself in except for Michael Peña who is a latino who i think in many respects he's like well no but they they're not racist because every latino character in this movie shows no other side than just being the nice courteous person they are which also seems oddly racist in a movie where everyone is experiencing some form of racism but but they are safe and i think go back to that point i made before which is like is that just like, again, white guilt being like, oh, but the people who are in our homes and work for us, they they actually are the good ones. I mean, that like, it's so mind boggling to me.
1: I mean, I at least know that Michael Pena was one of the only people on the cast not invited to the Oscars Whoa. because he wasn't as famous as anybody else by a long shot. And so, I mean, as he says at the time, like, quote, I was nobody. So all he could do instead was like his agent got him on the list for like a viewing party that was at some bar in La Cienega. Oh,
2: my God. And he like
1: went up and he showed up at the door and the door guy wouldn't let him in because he wasn't on the list somehow after all. And he kept being like, I'm on crash. I'm in crash. And they finally let him in. He got into this viewing party for the Oscars. He got a drink. He sat alone. And when Crash won, he screamed, and he was the only buddy cheering in the bar, and people were just staring at him, like, we have no idea who you are, what you're doing here. I mean, he has always said at least the one really positive aspect for Crash for him was that up until this point in his career, he had only been really playing gang members. Like, that was just it. That was all casting people ever saw him as, and that Crash finally became this pivot point where he was seen as somebody who actually had range as an actor, seen as somebody beyond. And so at least there's that.
2: No, I I take that. And I, I was truly looking at this movie and thinking about it in a grander scale. There is a lot of hate here. I've expressed a lot of like frustration and anger at this movie. But I do wonder, does this movie have a lasting effect on our culture, on the films that we make? And I want to just lean into what you were saying before, which is, You know, oftentimes we tell these stories, especially in mainstream Hollywood movies, which this isn't, by the way. And that's the one important point I'd like to point out. Like most of the times those racism stories are told like, and racism doesn't exist. And that's in a big budget movie. Here, I feel like the message is the same, but it's a little indie, which whatever. I'll put that on the side because I'm trying to give it a compliment and say, I think that a movie like this, whether it makes you angry or you feel like, it connected with you on some way, it might have opened up people to tell more stories like this that feel quote-unquote like honest. If you do it out of anger and going like, fuck this guy, I'm going to show you like a true movie about race from a perspective that is different, then like God bless, like go and make that. And maybe this movie was the catalyst for that. I also think that it shows because of its success that A, actors, big-name actors could cut their pay and tell a story that feels more personal, feels smaller. I mean, this changes the entire business. So I do think on some level, the big actors, the low budget, and the personal nature of the story, whether or not that worked or didn't, I do think it influenced the way that people can tell stories and make them incredibly personal. And I think we've gotten from this point further into a world where there is a lot more nuance. And I think that's, you know, maybe it's it's me just reacting to the first one out of the gate or one of the ones that are trying to be something um, and failing because we've now seen such a long history since then of movies that's done it better.
1: Well, Ludacris has said that he doesn't think that Fast and Furious would exist without Crash as an ensemble piece. Hmm. Before then, being like, here is a cast made of all different corners of Los Angeles, all different ethnicities, you know, in a film together that makes money. And if that's true, and I think he's being somewhat sarcastic, but let's just pretend he's being absolutely serious. That This is not a ludicrous statement that he is now Chris Sincere Bridges. (laughs) Chris Sincere Bridges, if he is sincere about this, then that means that Crash is basically responsible for everything. Because I feel like Fast and Furious is responsible for so much of the diverse casting we finally get today, that that is also a blockbuster that encouraged producers to feel confident putting together all sorts of people in a cast. And so if we're extrapolating for there, we're like, wow, man, it's all thanks to Crash. And I don't believe that at all. And I don't think Ludacris believes that either. But it's a fun
2: argument to have. I, I, I won't disbelieve it, because I think on some level you're right that you can show that, like, Money can be made. I mean, that's at the end of the day, that's, that's what it, this, right? this business is all about. Can you make money on this stuff? And I will say, look at it in context. We had our conversation about Brokeback Mountain a few episodes ago. And what we got to in that movie was something similar. While beautiful, while artistic, it also seemed incredibly safe. It seemed like, is that the one that we want to save? Or was it really the one that put bigger actors? It made money and it opened the doors. And if you put both of these movies side by side, and you say that that is a movie that may have introduced people to part of gay culture that they felt nervous to explore or seek out, uh, and the same thing for a movie like this that you know opened up doors that people felt a little bit nervous to go through, that is a win. And sometimes, often, those movies pale in comparison to where we get.
1: So, in a way, we can say that 2005 saved America. But what I think is really ironic and funny about this is that I believe that a lot of Crash's hate stems from the fact that it beat Brokeback at the the Oscars. That here are these two films that actually now can see kind of operating in tandem as two Mm -hmm. films opening doors to create the Hollywood that we know today. And... These two films seeming kind of passe looking back from today, but these two films were pit against each other. They weren't seen as tandem. And there was just all of this like outrage that Crash beat Broke Back. And I think that outrage is one of those things that cast a shadow here, kind of in the way that everybody pretends like they don't think Shakespeare in Love is a good movie because it beats Saving Private Ryan. When I will right. stand firm and say Shakespeare in Love is a better movie than Saving Private Ryan. And I thought it was really interesting researching this episode to go back to this moment in 2005, 2006, lead up to that Oscar campaign, where people were losing their mind about this, like, like, publicly, Ernest Borgnine, Tony Curtis, you know, older members of the Academy said, we will not watch Brokeback Mountain, we find it disgusting. And there was this, you know, absolutely justified, like, kind of defensiveness on behalf of Brokeback. How dare you? How dare you? And when the postmortem pieces started to come out about why did Crash beat Brokeback, one of the things Kenneth Duran, who writes for the L.A. Times, you know, wrote was he thought, you know, more than any of the other nominated films, Brokeback Mountain was the one people told me they didn't really feel like seeing, didn't really get, didn't understand the fuss over, didn't really like it, they wanted to know. Yes, I really did. But in the privacy of the voting booth, as many candidates who have led in polls only to lose elections have found out, people are free to act out the unspoken fears and unconscious prejudices that they would never breathe to another soul or likely acknowledge to himself. So he's basically saying that Brokeback lost because people behave the way that they do in Crash, which is they hold all these prejudices. They don't want to say them out loud. And when they kind of do, they're like, oh, I don't really want to watch a movie about gay cowboys. And that that effect that this film captures is why it won in a weird way.
2: That totally makes sense to me. Uh, it it also has something that I believe Hollywood always and often rewards, which is big movie stars. You know, and, you know, we look back now and we see, like, we look at Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal. But if you put them next to each other, Crash is the blockbuster Hollywood movie. We are rewarding people for taking chances. And and I do think that that is important. I, I just did a little very base experiment here, right? And I, I figured, all right, 2005 is the year of Brokeback, Crash, among others. But when you look at the top 10 box office, you know, films, you look at that, it's, you know, War of the Worlds, it's Harry Potter, it's Star Wars. And then I skipped ahead two years because I figured, OK, maybe these movies start to influence where we go. And slowly but surely over from 2007 all the way through 2012 and and continuing on, we start to see these smaller movies break into the top 20 movies of the year. You know, they start to take over. And I think that part of that is actors willing to take a chance because they were rewarded for cutting their salary and trying something a little bit different. But it also is a chance to do a personal story. Like some dog millionaire, you know, comes out, uh, you know, a couple, just a couple years later. And I think that not to say that, you know, like Ludacris says that without Crash, it wouldn't be Fast and Furious. But I think by 2009, as an audience, we're open a little bit more. You know, we're getting blindside in the top 10. Not that that's like, again, like it's small. It's, it's small. doing
1: this movie again, kind of.
2: <laughs> yeah, but it's, and you know, when you have a movie like Gran Torino, which is also, you know, and that's in the top 20, like, I'm not saying these are perfect movies, but it starts to allow, I think, for people to take a little bit more chances. And I, and that definitely comes into where we are now. You know, they're never going to be in the top 10 unless it's like Top Gun Maverick or Avatar. But I think for the most part, it is allowing a voice. And it's something that I think I deal with all the time. It's like, will you come do this thing? It's very little money, but... It will be a really good experience and the script is really good. And, you know, there is something to be said for independent cinema really being helped by 2005. And the reaction to that, like I said earlier, in either way, like you're mad at it and you want to do it better or you feel like, oh my gosh, now I can finally tell my small story and it can actually work and it can get the accolades. Like Sumdong Millionaire, I think, you know, is an interesting one because That to break into the top, you know, 25 or whatever it was, that's huge. We should probably do that film, now that I think about it. I would love to do that, yeah.
1: But if we're talking about how this film kind of builds to today's Oscars, Brendan Fraser, last person to sign on to Crash, the person who Paul Haggis has said him agreeing to do this movie was really why we finally got financing at the very end. It's like we had everybody else, but it was like they're holding out for Frase. Once we got Frase, then we could make this movie for real. And I was kind of giggling about this because now that Oscars have been announced and Brendan Fraser is nominated for the very first time, we're going to be getting a lot of Fraser. And I've been kind of against his campaign for the whale because A, the whale, it's terrible. But B, when I saw him do like a post-film Q&A for the whale, this is me being a petty little bitch. But like Brendan Fraser was doing this kind of like looking to the rafters, oh, let me tell you about this great performance that I'm in and how much it meant to me, and oh, no, 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 no. And I was like, oh, what a phony. I can't believe he's doing this for this movie. And then I went back and watched some of his interviews for Crash, and he's just had that voice the whole time. I'm the asshole. This is just how he talks. Rick Cabot's moral conundrum is that he has to make a decision about whether or not to squash a volatile situation that could ignite another race war in Los Angeles or to allow for the public
3: to believe that they have a fallen hero uh, rather than an enemy. And um, he's essentially a good man.
1: Rick is, um, but he's a human being. He's fallible
2: uh, as are, are we all?
1: So that's on me. I want to admit that now.
2: I've always been, a fan of Brendan Fraser and not a fan of Brendan Fraser from The Mummy because I don't like The Mummy. I know a lot of people love The Mummy. I'll still go uh, to bat to say it's nowhere near as good as Indiana Jones. I'm open to rewatching it, but I am more of a, a fan of Brendan Fraser in movies like Gods and Monsters. Like he had been doing subtly great work on the side for a long time. And someone said that he is a Great character actor trapped in a leading man's body, and I believe that this little period of time has allowed him to hopefully, maybe, do more of that. I don't know. I, I'm just, a, I'm not just to be like a a Fraser fan here. Uh, I just think it's it's interesting to see because I do think even in this film, he plays a politician. In a way, and I'm looking at these smaller details, like who are the characters that are like popping and pink things that are a little less arch. And I do think he plays a really nice moment in that relationship that he has with his like chief of staff. That's not really alluded to, but kind of there. Uh, there's some there's some stuff there that I thought was really interesting in his performance.
1: I feel like when you look at this film and all the doors that he that Haggis kind of opens up and doesn't explore, like Fraser and his, you know for his assistant in command or whatever you call that position. You can kind of get the sense that Haggis really was thinking of this as a TV show. You know, back in the day, that was his first kind of idea for it. He was a TV guy. He'd written TV for 20 years. He's a 30-something guy. When he wanted to do this, he thought he'd do it as a TV show. And then his wife was like, do it as a movie. And you can see that this could almost have been like wire adjacent, I guess. Like the Los Angeles version of The Wire. But then as soon as I start going down that thought, thought process, I'm like, oh, but they did try to make this a TV show. and It was so ridiculous. Have I
2: remember. Tra- oh,
1: my God. We got to play the trailer.
3: Okay. Lives will collide and tensions will ignite. From the producers of the Academy Award winning film comes the explosive new drama. He's here because of you. Your mouth around the white tube and blowing, all right, there, baby. That will take you to the edge. To the future! <laughs> and when you least expect it. You, man, you! Yeah. You're crazy, man, crazy, huh? Push you over. Let's
1: go. By the way, as a callback to this month of episodes on films with controversies behind them, one of the stars of the Crash TV show was the one, the only. Dennis Hopper, you have to listen to him right here.
3: I count the grains of sand on the beach and measure the sea. I understand the speech of the dumb, and I hear the voiceless. The smell has come to my sense of the hard-shelled tortoise, boiling and bubbling with a lamb's flesh in a bronze pot. The cauldron underneath it is bronze, and the lid is bronze.
2: Now tell me, Delphi. Do you see my doom? (laughs) Amazing Hopper performance right there. I I mean, really, maybe we should do Crash the whole first season. I mean, that should be, uh, we should split (laughs) off into a miniseries. There's two, I think. Two seasons of Crash.
1: Two seasons of Crash. That's so much crashing. I was (laughs) trying to count all of the cars that get crashed into in this movie. And I really, I really feel like I didn't get all of them. But there's... I mean, an endless amount of cars in here.
2: A lot of cars. A lot of cars. And there's uh, 26 episodes of that show. So imagine how many cars are in that.
1: Oh, my God. If we're already on like kind of a a rhythm of seven cars that are pivotal plot points in two hours, what on earth could two seasons be? That's like (laughs) a whole uh, Toyota dealership.
2: And again, if the purpose of movies is to make money, what better way to make money than selling cars? Amy, we brought it full circle. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, and I think we can both agree that uh, whatever you might think of Crash, this uh, shit is bananas.
1: All right. Well, we are heading into the season of love, of Valentine's Day. Yes. Of of sweat and abs and kissing and kissing in the rain. And I was trying to think, what is a romantic film that I could pick that would keep kind of this pattern going on of films that elicit booze and swoons? And... I thought, oh my God, Paul, we have to do a movie that I actually deeply, really enjoy. But every time you bring it up in polite society, somebody's going to go, "Oh my fucking god, already!" And that is, of course, the Notebook.
2: Oh, I love it. <laughs> I've never seen the Notebook, but you're right; it's one of those movies that is often, uh, you know, said with uh, an utter distaste. But I also know people love it. This this might be. A film like Love Actually, I don't know. I don't know what it would be. I, I truly don't. I, I don't know much about it besides Rain. And that really is just because there's a picture. I think someone dies. That That's about all I know.
1: Oh, I'm so happy for your heart. It's going to expand. I mean, come on. This is a movie with Ryan Gosling, Rachel McAdams, having genuine chemistry because they're dating at the time. My God. This is I everything love. you want from a romantic movie. If you don't like this movie, it's probably just because you don't like romances maybe we'll see we'll see how you feel about it we will see how you feel about it but i'm very excited to make you watch it
2: all right great well let's take a listen to the trailer
3: it was a magical summer noah was a country boy allie was from the city they met the night of the carnival they had nothing in common but after seeing allie that night something inside noah snapped
0: (laughs) will you go out with me no 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 Damn, my hand's slipping Okay, fine, I'll go out with you No, don't do me any favors No, I want to Say it again
3: I want to go out with you All right, all right, we'll go out They fell in love, didn't they? Yes, they did You want to dance with me?
1: Sure This is a good story
0: I think I've heard it before
1: It's like a dream So what do you
0: do, Noah? I work at the lumberyard How much do you make at your job? 40 cents an hour
3: it has got to stop. Noah! He's a nice boy, but he is not for you. I don't see how it's going to work. You are
0: not to see him anymore, and that's final.
2: All right, you can check out The Notebook, really, wherever, because we know that people are going to be checking it out all February. And Amy, uh, I'm going to be listening to your new podcast about Mayfair Witches. Where can people find that?
1: Oh, thank you. You know, Mayfair Witches is Anne Rice's really personal book series that she wrote about power and womanhood and her love of New Orleans. And the show uh, takes some very, 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 very big swings in the last couple episodes. And I have to say, I've loved doing this podcast because when you sit down with people like Harry Hamlin or Alexander Daddario and you're like, tell me everything weird and spooky about you. Like, let's talk about Anne Rice and mysticism and religion and everything. Just very, very, very weird things happen. Like Harry Hamlin took out his phone to show me a video he made of two rattlesnakes having sex. Like that's, yeah, the interviews have just been super wild and all over the place. So I've been really enjoying getting into my witchy side.
2: I am also fascinated by Anne Rice. And if you want to play cards and have Amy and I come to your card game, it's simple. You can get your pack of unspooled cards designed by kim troxel celebrating all the movies that we have done here on the show or at least 52 of the movies that we've done here on the show uh go to podswag.com find the unspooled show page and you can order right there they're awesome everyone that i've given a deck to really uh, loves it so uh definitely check that out Until next week, but a big thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, our EPs, Cody Fisher and Colin Anderson, our MVP, Molly Reynolds, our theme song by Michael Cassidy, our fan art by Kim Troxall. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, rate, review, and follow us on Apple and also on Amazon. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can talk about all these movies on the Paul Shear Discord. Just go to discord.gg slash paul shear. unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled but you can also get your very own deck of unspooled playing cards which are absolutely gorgeous, all designed by Kim Troxell at podswag.com. Just find The Unspooled Show, and you'll see it right there. You can hear past episodes of the show and bonuses like Screen Test on Sticker Premium. And for the official API, that's the Paul and Amy Institute list of our favorite films that we've ever done from the show, you can head on over to unspooledpod.com. <laughs> Life is a
3: highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
0: The Living Room is where you make life's most beautiful memories.